Hey, hey, all. Welcome back to Down to Brown. I hope wherever you are, whatever you're doing while you're listening to this podcast episode, you are well, my friend. It's I, Lahari Rao, your host. And today I am particularly grateful to be talking to our guest, especially in the midst of what we're experiencing in California. And if you're not in California, I promise you this is still relevant. It talks about things that are affecting our country as a whole. During the winter, we saw, for example, the our friends in the Pacific Northwest, some of us in the Midwest as well, really experiencing drastic weather. And as a Californian, I watched knowing that, hey, it's really crazy to see this in the Pacific Northwest. We've heard about this in uh, you know Illinois and states like that, but really thinking of my friends, checking in on them, et cetera. And then very shortly after, we had these psychotic storms that hit us. And it, for whatever reason, climate change, weather patterns, et cetera, it happened and it was out of our control. And it was incredibly humbling. I have friends who were experiencing the whole spectrum of damage to their homes, to their day-to-day lives. And I really couldn't believe that, you know, our state was experiencing something that we really hadn't in a very, very historically like long time. So we were already getting through that trauma a little bit of, oh my gosh, this really wrecked some of our lives and um, was very unexpected. And then in the meantime, this weekend, we had two tragic experiences. One, a shooting in Monterey Park, uh, which is closer to Southern California. And we had one just a day ago in Half Moon Bay with, uh, again, uh, the farming community in Half Moon Bay. This is gun violence. Let me take a step back. Gun violence in the States is not something that we have unfortunately been shocked by. In fact, I think we are all hitting that point of rage numbness where it's I'm always in rage. Every time this comes up, I am the same feeling of heartbroken. My stomach sinks. I feel this aching pain of what can I do? And every time we don't get a satisfactory response or action from those who are actually able to make those decisions. And so we kind of forget about the news cycle, like moves on. And then another thing will happen. And nowadays it's like within the same week, in this case, it's within the same three days that it happened. On Instagram, I apologize. I said 24 hours, but it's because of the news cycle of reporting it within 24 hours that I saw. It's actually like from a chronological order. It is three days. That's a lot. That's too much to happen. And affecting a community, the Asian American community, which is supposed to be celebrating one of the most joyful celebrations of their culture, Lunar New Year. I can't imagine them carrying this with you. And my heart is truly with the Asian American community right now. That being said, I don't know what else can help us feel connected to gun violence. This is impacting us so much. And yet I have always felt that it's something that doesn't really have a place for me to participate in. And I don't know if I'm alone. If you were not one, if you were one of me, like, please like raise your hand or something and I'll feel it in spirit because I always felt like sort of that as an Indian girl, what can I really, do I see myself in that fight? 
not because I don't care. I just haven't seen South Asian um, representatives, honestly, in that conversation. And so I always thought maybe it's not my place. But when you look at the data and I identify as South Asian American, I've chosen to live in America. I'm building my family in America. And as I look at it, the data is just pointing to Lahari, get your ish together and spend time on this. Last episode, the first one of 2023, I did sort of a 2022 examination of like, how good was it for the cause of women and how good was it for our progress? But if you look at 2022 on that similar vein, the U.S. experienced a record number of shootings. In fact, they experienced more than 600 mass shootings in 2022. I'm sorry if I yelled really loudly, but I need to emphasize this is nearly double the number recorded four years ago when there were 336. And this is according to Washington-based Gun Violence Archive. When you're seeing 600 in 2022, that means almost an average of one and a half to two shootings a day. I don't want to live in a country like that. And I really feel sometimes lost and cynical about what I'm seeing. I promise this leads to our guest because I am so, so grateful. That's why I am so grateful that we are talking to Janani Ramachandran today. Janani is the city council member who was just elected in, uh, well, 2022, and she was sworn in in January uh, for District 4 in Oakland. This is my district, actually, so I'm very excited. In fact, when I was where were we? My husband and I were in DC celebrating one of my best friend's weddings and my cousin and his fiance house sat and dog sat for us. And Jenny was in the midst of doing her campaigning uh, where she knocked on the doors of over 10,000 people locally. And she apparently talked to my cousin, Adam. So I was super thrilled to hear. He felt like he like met a celebrity and he told me, he texted me like, I, I met Jenny. Like, she seems really awesome. I told her though, like, it's not my house, but I promise I'm not breaking in. So uh, I don't know if she remembers that one of 10K, but um, I thought it was a very fun story. So she's seen my house, y'all. <laughs> Jokes aside, I'm glad it was meant to be that I could talk to her because when I pitched her the idea after she met my cousin, uh, it was before she was I, she had won the election. And I really just wanted to talk to someone who I was looking at signs around my neighborhood that said Janani, her logo was a tiger. And I thought like, wow, I connect with this so much, right? And I just see a name like Janani and I have to look twice that it's on a board for politics. And uh, talking to her really helped me feel a little bit more optimistic. And I'm really going to think about this conversation as I sort through these feelings of what's happening with gun violence in this country, in this state, and think about how I want to turn it into action and actual putting my um, time towards it. The reason I feel more optimistic is because of two things that she mentioned. One, she talks about representation without being too on the nose about it. In the sense, she mentions how it's not enough to just talk about the Kamala's once they're in office, once they're on a really large platform, getting recognition, no matter what your politics are. But you have to invest in the initial campaigns of people that are trying to win in small. And I, I use the word small, not as in significance, but as scale, um, small, uh, smaller campaigns that help build up to that career. 
And so it doesn't mean investing money wise. It could be she has different ideas, like knocking on the doors for people, helping them canvas, helping them by, you know, participating in volunteering work. Um, spreading the word, amplifying, you know, their, their story and campaign, for example. So these are all ways that you can help people start to get out there and see that maybe that if they try, there can be progress in their campaign. They can maybe be victorious even. And just seeing her honestly has helped me feel like, okay, if someone who sort of looks like me, um, maybe comes from a similar background, maybe we think similarly, I don't know. Um, from 40 minutes of talking to her if we're like twins. But, you know, I, I do feel like there's this piece of, I can see a little bit of myself in her. And that honestly is enough for me to feel like maybe I can do something in my own local way. The other thing that really stood out to me about what she spoke of with her background is that she has multiple identities. So she is a queer woman of color. She is an Indian um, American who... The other thing that really stood out to me is Jenny's ability to focus her energy while also coming from so many beautiful identities. She identifies as a queer woman of color. She identifies as Indian, South Asian. She actually lived there for a few years in India um, during high school years. And then she also identifies as an American and specifically connected with the East Bay and now Oakland. While I might look at something like that and say, oh my gosh, where do you start? How can you care about all the things? Shouldn't you give back to India just as much as America, et cetera? She talks a lot about how she took that global perspective and worldview and let it inform how she wanted to focus on where she's going to make impact. And she said, I come, I made, I decided I'm going to make impact in Oakland. And I like that she committed to something. And while it feels like one city, one district within the mass of districts and cities we have in this country, it's going to affect our lives. It's going to certainly affect my life. And in fact, you'll hear Janani sound very, and she is very humble, level-headed. She's very accomplished as well. Imagine having all of these accolades with one achievement. She got elected, right? As this council member in District 4 Oakland. She is the first queer woman of color to hold that title. She is the first South Asian to hold that title. She is also the youngest person to hold that title at the age of 30. I am nearly three years older than her. And this woman has done more in her lifetime than I can ever do. I am so impressed with her. And I'm really, really excited for you to talk to her and hear a little bit more about what it is to take our background, take our nuances and hyphenated identities and put it towards something that we can be proud of and take action on locally. Without further ado, let's talk to Jenny. All right, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us on Down to Brown. I'm so thrilled to have you. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, we, we just won our election. Uh, we ended up with a little over 68% of the vote, so feeling pretty good. Oh my gosh, congratulations. So you've been going through the most boring of months, huh? <laughs> the last few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get a little bit of a rest before everything begins on the 9th of January, so. Absolutely. I hope you will be able to enjoy the holidays and then start the year fresh, and we're so excited for you. 
I'm incredibly excited for you to represent my uh, district, but of course, I'm also really excited to talk to you a little bit more about your story and how South Asian women can get much more involved in politics and some of the unique perspectives that we can bring, actually, when we do this work in the U.S., and so I'd love to ground us first, you know, when I was doing my research about you, you have such a loving reverence for your family's stories, your parents, and how they helped shape the opportunity for you to embark on the path you are today. Can I ask, you know, if you had to think back to any pivotal moments or experiences that happened to you as a South Asian American, what were those that helped propel you on this path, you think? Yes. So, um, my parents are always cared deeply about public service and instilled the values in me that um, it is important. It's important to know where we came from, um, which is not a lot. And when we do have opportunities and means, we give back. Um, that's just been a value of my culture and our cultural practices. And um, so, from from a very early age, I was encouraged to think about creative ways to give back. Um, I was born and mostly raised in Fremont, and the first fundraiser that I did was when I was in third grade. I had learned about the Gujarat earthquake that had happened in India, and I remember the first thing of asking my mom, you know, what's what's going to happen to all these kids? You know, what's what happens when you have a national uh, tragedy like that? Um, and what? And her first question was, you know how can you support them? Think about ways that you can do something about this. And that was a theme uh, throughout my upbringing as well. Um, I actually went to high school in India. I moved uh, to India with my family and living there really taught me how deeply public service um, is important. The um, economic inequalities in America are certainly extremely pronounced right here in Oakland. We see the wealth gap. We see um, so much tragedy around us um, and economic injustices. Um, and it's even more so in India. So I set up um, a, a fundraisers for all sorts of things when I was there. Blanket drives in the, in the winter months um, where I lived in India. It does get chilly in the winter. Um, I set up a small nonprofit that set up libraries and under-resourced schools in my neighborhood. And it was really because of the support from my parents, um, particularly my mother, who encouraged me to always think about what can you do? How can you be creative about solutions rather than just complaining and saying that's sad? Absolutely. I, I think there's a strong sense of, you know, in almost every subculture of South Asia, the seva concept of like, how do you serve others? And I think that's such a beautiful aspect of that, um, you know, sort of philosophy. But, you know, the climate looks so different in India versus the U.S. as well, right? Some of the political realities. So how did you find yourself then? You know, when did you transition back to the U.S.? How did you start to apply some of the things you've learned in perhaps an apples and oranges setting, but then also the same drive and values? Yeah. Um, so after high school, I did move back to the Bay. Um, I went to Stanford for undergrad and my time living in another country really solidified that I care about uh, good government and being more involved in being a part of creating better institutions that serve the needs of our communities. Um, so I studied political science, economic development. I mean, I took classes on everything from corruption to uh, how to build good democracies, uh, the failures of American democracy and so many other things that um, 
started to light the fire in me that one day I may want to consider being an elected official. I didn't know it at the time. Um, being part of student government was as far as I thought I might go for a little while. Um, I majored in international relations and thought that I would, you know, head to D.C. and go that route. But it's really the challenges right here at home, right here in our neighborhoods that made me focus on direct community services. Uh, so my first job out of um, college was really serving uh, pregnant mothers uh, in their homes. I did home visiting case management services, and it was so eye opening to see how inequitable our legal systems are, healthcare systems, um, housing, uh, economic workforce systems. I mean, that was a great exposure to being in people's homes and trying to pe meet people where they are at on their journey to um, self-empowerment and empowerment for themselves and their families. Um, I really focused on domestic violence cases, and ultimately that's what led me to law school, where um, throughout law school, I continued to work with domestic violence survivors in different legal aid organizations. Um, and that kind of was a part of a huge part of my journey for a while, direct services. That's incredible. And it's so interesting to me to hear how people land where they are, like one experience begets another and sooner or later, you're doing the thing you were meant to do. And you don't even realize how all the beads come together to form it. And so I'm really fascinated by that. I am also very fascinated by the fact that when you made those decisions to study more closely political science and go towards that route in public service, you know, it's really not a space that I've heard. Perhaps this is, you know, I, I really, my personal theory, right? These are, I don't know if like it's backed up, but I haven't heard like a lot of the families that we grew up with and messages that I heard from family friends was, you know, focus on STEM majors, like sort of these um, industries that would have the stable, predictable outcome. And it was all with good intent. But when it came to the public service space or getting involved in social justice issues, I tend to hear even from my families, like, messages about, you know, this is something that it's great, but do it on the side, like, you know, as a full-time thing, like you can't give yourself that much, which always seemed contradictory to the SEVA component too. And so I'm curious, how did you navigate that? Were your parents just perfect? Did they like helped you kind of find this path more easily? Was it because you were at Stanford? Because at that point, if I got into Stanford, my parents would be like, you can major in mac and cheese and we don't care you're at Stanford. <laughs> so how did you come to this place? Yeah, I mean, I think there must have been a point in high school where I told my parents, don't want to be a doctor, don't want to be an engineer, which my mom is an eye doctor and my dad <laughs> so it was very clear, not interested in either of your paths. Um, and I think the thing was, if I could be self-sufficient, if I could find a career path of doing something, something good for the world or good for myself and make enough money to support myself uh, doing it, um, then they were on board. Um, mm -hmm. I got, I remember very clearly getting good grades in math and science to say that I did it and not wanting to pursue it any more than that. And yeah. it, was, it was an early experience of me finding my niche um, and the things that I was good at and how I can make sure that I continue to dive into those things rather than just doing things 
for the sake of it. Um, Absolutely. But even in even in the government affairs policy uh, public service world, um, I had my own journey in that too. There are a lot of people fresh out of college students that feel like they're on top of the world and that they're ready to go advise Obama and whatever at the time. Um, I mean, you're you're. You ha- I used to have all these classroom simulations where you're making key national security decisions and your input is respected as a 21 year old. And I actually, uh, when I said my first job was direct services, actually, that was a mistake. My first job was at, you know, a somewhat prestigious um, international development policy focused kind of work. Um, and I quit in three months because I hated every second of it. And mm-hmm. I realized that. I didn't want to be here with a lot of people that think they're saving the world and doing something when um, a lot of policy, especially towards other countries and foreign policy is, is failing us. There's so much going on right in our own neighborhoods and in our towns and communities that need to be addressed first, which is why I pivoted from that prestigious sounding policy space into literal direct neighborhood services. Absolutely. That takes a lot to recognize that, you know, in such a quick period of time and make that decision. Um, You know, sometimes it's hard not to feel like, oh, but I committed. And but if you know, like, this is where my heart is, and this is where I'm going to make the impact. Thank you for sharing that story. Because I think a lot of us could benefit from that type of, you know, when your gut is speaking to you, just listen to it. What made you want to help in the US versus taking that experience back to India after school? Yeah, um, I've had a great experience uh, living in India for a period of time in high school, and it really shaped my worldview and also my understanding of government systems. Mm-hmm. Um, India has gone through a lot of political upheaval in the last several decades um, since becoming independent, and we're all still trying to grapple with that. Some of the same issues that impacted India, though, impact mm-hmm. Oakland. Um, yeah. You have gentrification. You have unaffordable housing, you have uh, infrastructure and congestion and influx of so many new people. You have um, pressure between those who are native to the land and the community and versus those that make, you know, these cities their homes. And um, on top of that, you have a lot of corruption. The scale of corruption was is is certainly different in India and other places, but there is a lot of. And I I talked about this a lot in the campaign. There's overt corruption that happens in the city of Oakland, and then there's more legalized forms of corruption. And there's a lot of forms of mismanagement of public resources um, that are just not talked about. So there's a lot more secretive forms of corruption and doing business in American politics. And what really hit me was when I served on the city of Oakland Public Ethics Commission. We were investigating cases of corruption, bribery, uh, using public resources for private gain. And it really shocked me to see all that was going on in the city of Oakland, or really it was just a small slice of what we ended up investigating of things that were going on in the city of Oakland. So I wanted to direct my resources here. And, um, you know, the East Bay is my home and I've always considered it um, home. Um, India is another home as well. Um, but to me, um, I, I see myself and grounded in my future uh, right here in Oakland. There's so much goodness there because I think you really nailed that nuance of having those multiple identities, but being able to carry it in a way where you're honoring both. But if your connection being here, 
you know, that's something that my parents always used to kind of remind me growing up. Like, I I don't know if it's a function of being a 90s kid, but I assumed like everything's perfect in the US and in India. We like see all these things much more blatantly. I think it's in your face. Like you're sitting next to a, you're driving past a hotel. Two feet later, there's like a slum settlement and you like just get used to these dualities that are more in your face. And I think here, you know, it was really 2020 where many of us were also like, whoa, what is happening? Like we started to really have this gut check and reality check of what might be the, um, you know, day to day of politics and that it might have always been the case, but sort of this awakening there. Um, and so I just appreciate you sharing that because you're right, like there's just so much more that we could be doing here. And I think that's the call to action that a lot of us are feeling, but may not know how to exercise it yet. Um, and you mentioned, you know, this, especially the district that we're, you're representing, we live in, you know, this is one that I find very intriguing because it's also similar to what I described in India, where you were, are probably much more versed in this, but on one hand, you have some of the most expensive homes that you could afford. You know, my husband and I live in like, we barely made it in this neighborhood of Montclair. Like we're imposters essentially uh, is how we feel. And then, you know, you have these uh, other homes where I've noticed, you know, my friend used to live in East Oakland area. And I was like, you know, when we have a pothole, I'm noticing that people fix it pretty quickly. Um, it feels very rare for Oakland to be that quick about fixing potholes. Do you think it's because it's a sort of a higher income neighborhood? And she was like, yeah, I definitely think so because we've been dealing with this stuff and no one's been taking care of it. And it's really frustrating. Um, mm -hmm. And so it kind of made us question like, you know, how maybe that is where we do have to be more aware of like, where's the funding going? And like, how is that playing a part in some of the inequity of how we also provide that allocation? Maybe this makes more sense to you, but I'm curious, you know, how you are thinking about this sort of um, nuance and duality that exists in our district of so much wealth, so much opportunity, so much more that we could do to bring everyone to a more equitous space. I mean, it's a really important question that I'm going to be thinking about for the next several years, um, the next, um, it, because as a district representative, you know, my responsibilities are first and foremost to the constituents of this district who deserve to have a voice. At the same time, um, while this is probably the, it is the wealthiest district in Oakland and has a higher concentration of wealth and privilege, I would say most residents um, care about Oakland as a whole as well. Mm -hmm. There's, I think, a duality to most people. Most people in, in District 4 do care about, you know, the kind of property crime happening on their street, care about the potholes and some of the local issues, as well as homelessness in other parts of Oakland and, you know, communities in total disrepair and um, racial injustice and economic injustice. I think most people kind of feel both needs at the same time. Um, I see my role as trying to tap into both of those things. The immediate responsibilities are to the hyper-local issues. You know, that is the, that is a job I signed up for. Um, I want to be the person that communities can feel comfortable going to to talk about needing a stop sign on their block because there's been too many potential accidents. I want to be the person who understands 
which local small business in our district has been broken into so many times that they're struggling and might need to leave. So mm-hmm. the foundations of good government to me is the hyper local. So I want to make sure that I'm spending most of my energy and time um, understanding that so that it's a part of a strategy to strengthen Oakland as a whole and make sure we are thinking about the broader issues. Um, If we can deal with some of the challenges in this district, which does have more resources and more, most importantly, more voter participation, um, then we can spread those success stories and examples to other parts of Oakland. We can have more cross district solidarity and idea sharing. Um, There is so much potential that we have, you know, most people when they want to complain about City Hall, they go to next door and write some mean things about their council members or their or, or the city. And there's just this sense of feeling jaded. But if you take some of the same people who may have a little more time on their hands, um, may have a little bit of time and or financial resources to spare and harness good ideas. So together we have a lot of collective power that one council member alone doesn't have, but can play more of a facilitating role and energizing people to step up and support their neighborhood. And we already have that in a lot of ways. The pandemic to me, um, as much tragedy as it's spread, we do see more of a spirit of volunteerism, getting to know your neighbors. There are a lot of blocks in our district that have Sunday night evening happy hours on the block. There are a lot more neighborhoods where people are engaged in litter walks and park cleanups. Um, and I think if we can, I think we can take that to another level by getting people engaged in some of the more difficult issues in the city as well. Absolutely. That is super, super helpful. And so you mentioned, you know, sort of the day-to-day things that people, we don't really think about the stop sign. All of those are part of our day-to-day joy and opportunity in our neighborhoods and spaces. What can the average Joe like us, you know, and especially as you think about, you know, when you look at the South Asian community, how, how would you like, what do you think they're doing well right now and how they're playing a role and maybe increasingly so in politics um, and their local politics? And what would you like to see more of? I think locally in Oakland, um, especially in District 4, we're seeing um, a massive increase in the number of South Asians who are choosing to live here and perhaps moving from other places. Um, We're seeing a lot of the younger generation, um, a lot of families coming in um, who who really care Um, on the campaign trail. You know, I knocked on about 10,000 doors and I spoke to a lot. I knocked on the doors of a lot of South Asian families who um, are very progressive, who care about the big issues, who care about everything from public education to street safety to, um, you know, the deep rooted issues and are playing more of a role in civic life. There's some people I, I notice who are South Asians who are involved in their school community and organizing students and organizing parents. There are others that I've been seeing who are trying to take a step in their neighborhood councils and some of um, the local neighborhood structures that exist. Um, and I see a lot of positivity here with the South Asian community and more engagement for sure. Um, I think broader across, you know, the Bay Area, across California, I would love to see more South Asians involved in politics, um, given the number of, you know, the percentage of residents that we are in California. I believe it's you know close to five percent that we are in the state of California. 
um, we should be seeing more representation at different levels. And um, Alameda County itself, you have some communities that have a significantly higher South Asian population in, in the Bay Area, um, in several different counties. And um, in order to really have that leadership um, at the local level, but also at the state level, for example, um, is important to realize that South Asians need to stand up for each other. If there are local races or or larger scale races going on, yeah. um, it's not good enough to you know support the Kamala Harris's once they're in office, but making sure that you're that playing some role in supporting some of their initial campaigns. It could be a small dollar donation. It could be one day of knocking on doors for them. It could be something that amplifies what they're doing and helps them get to uh, victory and encourages South Asians to run. I appreciate that so much. I think we're making a lot of headway in other industries, for example, like, you know, tech, there's no doubt. And um, still there's opportunity for women of color, but also in Hollywood, for example, and the media. But I think politics is something that we sort of forget is like the most important, in fact. Um, and I feel like a lot of the progress sometimes that we benefit from is because of other sister community communities of color that have paved the way. And now as, you know, we move forward, it would be great to have our voices represented and that's up to us. And so I appreciate you doing that work and helping us inspire to do that more and more. Um, and seeing stories like yours is just helpful to see, you know, it, it can happen. We can also make an impact in this way. And so I really appreciate that. Um, my last question for you is, you know, you, you have a multiple, you know, I saw on your website, you have a very intersectional identity. And I'm curious, you know, as a, a woman who identifies LGBTQ and South Asian American, how do you feel like your intersectional identity shapes the way that you can represent your constituents? Definitely. Um, it was an interesting joke uh, a few years ago that District 4 used to have the highest concentration of lesbians and bisexual women in the entirety of Oakland. Um, actually, a few several decades ago, it, it was a very welcoming, it became a very welcoming place for queer women in particular, um, mm -hmm. which is why you have a pretty large community of mm -hmm. LGBTQ women, LGBTQ women of color in different parts of this district. So um, it's certainly a welcoming space. Um, we also need representatives that kind of share these different identities. We've never had an LGBTQ woman of color. Uh, we've only mm -hmm. had two or three openly queer um, council members in the history of Oakland, uh, which given yeah. where we are in our population is pretty surprisingly low. Um, yeah. So to me, it's the identities that I have as, you know, South Asian, being queer, being a child of immigrants, but also um, as a renter, um, for example, I think that's perspective that is not always present on council. Uh, my background being a millennial, it's a younger voice also that I think um, is important to have representation of and the combination of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping that some of these identities that I hold can encourage more folks that maybe share some of those to get more involved um, and know that elected office is possible for anyone. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so excited for you and January 9th. I know you're going to do great things. So I appreciate you so much for spending this time and for telling us a little bit more about you. I'd love to end with a fun little rapid fire with you. It'll just take 30 seconds and I will try not to ask you too many follow-up questions because I always get fascinated. But are you ready for our trip trip round? Yeah, let's do it. 
So what was the last show you binge watched on TV slash streaming services? Ooh, um, uh, it's embarrassing, but I definitely binge watched Love is Blind season one, two, and three. I do not blame you. <laughs> You're feeling discouraged by the news cycle that day. What is one thing you do to help yourself feel more activated or, you know, cheered up? Yeah, um... There's, there's so much beautiful culture in Oakland and art is something that inspires me. Um, I'm a trained uh, classical Indian musician and wow. um, I all kinds of music. And to me, uh, celebrating o Oakland's arts culture, even if it's a small thing, like going to, it, of course, going to live music is great, um, but also maybe just celebrating Oakland's art space in some way or the other always cheers me up. I love that. I remember in 2020, we moved to Uptown and there was just so much art on the walls, like the graffiti. It's just gorgeous and inspiring. So um, what is the best seasonal Trader Joe's item, in your opinion? Ah, seasonal Trader Joe's items. Um, I love, I mean, the peppermint Jojo's are great. Yes. <laughs> so I think yeah, I'm going to go with that. Awesome. And it's timely. What is your favorite? I have a two-parter. What is your favorite South Asian South Asian owned brand? And what's your favorite local brand? Oh, oh gosh, there, there are so many um that I'm excited by. Um right now, the what's in my spice cabinet includes Diaspora uh co uh spices. Um, the owner actually lives in District 4. I knocked on her door one day. Oh, my gosh. So, um, celebrity crush, I am knocking on your door. And <laughs> I have all your spices in my cabinet. Um, so very, it's an international company, but it's also a very local brand as well because uh, of being headquartered in Oakland. Um, yeah. So that's my favorite South Asian owned band, uh, brand. I, I guess that's both local and um yeah you were efficient with that okay, one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the yeah. way to do it last but not least what's something your mom or dad used to do when you were growing up that you're like oh, man I'm doing that exact thing that I didn't even realize that you do now oh my gosh um it's been a lot of things lately uh I think it's uh cleanliness I was mm -hmm. not I was not a particularly clean child my room would always be messy and now that I have my own space um I'm particular uh, I'm a little more particular about you know the thing of all of the countertops always have to be clean before you go to bed like that is that that's a ritual that I did not particularly care about and through most of my twenties, but now I'm like, yep, that, that that's happening every night. It is who I <laughs> Except am. on the campaign trail. That's the only time everything goes to the dog. Goes out the window. <laughs> well, you have a very clean space behind you. So uh, you've convinced me. <laughs> Oh, oh I'm, at, I'm at my parents' house right now, so. Oh, no way. So it's even more so probably. <laughs>